Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to Missions Week. We're glad that you're here. This this is really one of my favorite weeks of ministry at Grace every year. And, and tried to think, why exactly is that? What is it about it that stands out to me so much? And I think it's this. The reason is tied to the fact that during Missions Week, I'm forced in new ways to reconsider the vastness of the work and kingdom of God. There are so many, I imagine many of you know this as well, but there are so many immediately pressing issues in our lives, in my life, day after day, that it's sometimes hard to remember that God is bigger than my little kingdom or my little family or this little church or this little chunk of Minnesota. God is the God of the entire universe. He has people in every corner of the globe and is bring, that he is bringing to himself and caring for in love. I love that Missions Week forces me to look up and out and not just down and in like I so often do. And I love, <laughs> I love that Missions Week forces me, and I hope all of you as well, to consider afresh that God is bigger than you know, no matter how big you know him to be. Love that. Thanks, missions team, for helping us to develop a bigger view of God and the work he is doing in the world and challenging us to join him in it as he has called us to. So what's my role in this? Different people you'll see have different roles throughout Missions Week, and I'm thankful for all of them. Matt earlier shared part of his role was to share some of what it's like to be a missionary, and, and most recently in Ethiopia. My role year after year has been to preach on missions in such a way that grounds missions itself and our approach to it as a church in the Word of God. With the guidance of the missions team each year, we pick a, a theme or an approach, and we've done it in a number of different ways over the years, and usually usually they come to me with an idea that I never would have thought of on my own. And then I think, wow, that's awesome. Let's do that. This is no exception. Uh, this morning then, they asked me to preach on missions in Genesis, which, you know, we've been in Genesis for a long time, never at quite this angle, but I'm glad for the opportunity to do so. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach on missions in Genesis. I have two aims, twin aims this morning. One is to help all of us grow in our understanding of the greatness of God through Genesis. So I say that, you're still, some of you are warming your brains up from this morning. Let me say it again because you need to hear this. If this sermon works, at least by my design and prayer, your view of God will grow significantly this morning. Your view of the greatness of God will grow. That's my first aim. And the second one flows out of it. And that is to help all of us translate that, that greater view of God, that bigger view of God and his glory into greater involvement in world missions. So to those ends from Genesis, I'll give you the five points. Here they are. Number one, missions begins with a God that is worth telling people about. Here's my five points. Number one, missions begins with a God who is worth telling people about. Number two, missions is necessary because people do not honor God as God. Number three, missions has been a part of God's plan from the very beginning. Number, number four, the aim of missions is feasting on and fellowshipping with God. And lastly, fifthly, missions works 
because God makes it work. So here's the thing. The power of preaching on these things through Genesis is not that Genesis says everything there possibly is to say about any one of these things. The power, and the reason I love that the missions team charged me to do this, the power of preaching on missions in Genesis is that it roots missions in the very foundation of the Bible. It's the first book of the Bible. It roots what we're called to do in light of the very beginning of things. This is not an afterthought. I'm not going to get into this, but later in the New Testament, we know that before the foundations of the earth, God intended there to be salvation through Christ and to bring that to the nations through his people to the praise of his glory and grace. And we get the beginning sense of that, the foundational nature of missions in Genesis. That's where the power is. There's a lot more to be said about missions than what we find in Genesis But what we find in Genesis helps us to see that it's at the root of life in Christ. So would you pray with me that God would help us to see all of this, transform it, transform us by it, and more. Let's pray. God, that's a lot of words just in the introduction. I I pray that what I would say would be from your word, that it would be clear, and that this people would be convicted deeply not to allow it to stay in their brains. We say this week after week. I say this week after week. The goal of preaching and teaching is that our minds would be renewed, not as an end in itself, but in order that we would be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit through that. Right action requires right thinking. Right thinking comes from your word. God, help us to see the beginning of missions in Genesis, in order that we might be, we might have our minds thrust into the rest of your word, in order that we might send and be sent into the nations. God, even as I say this explicitly, I pray it now that you would change us. You would cause us to stand this morning through this brief look across Genesis in greater awe and wonder at who you are in order that all of your commands would not be burdensome, but obvious and joyful and satisfying, that we'd, through seeing how great you are, stop chasing our satisfaction in places it cannot be found, but in you alone, and having drunk deeply, having tasted and seen that you are God and that you are God alone and that we were made for you to glorify and enjoy you forever, having seen and felt and experienced that in increasing measure. Make us a people who cannot be silent in our neighborhoods or to the ends of the earth. And as this is Missions Week, I I pray especially for the ends of the earth. Let us go. Let us support those who have gone, not ultimately for their sake, the missionary's sake, not even ultimately for the ones to whom they are going's sake, but ultimately for your sake, for your name's sake, to the praise of your glorious grace in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I I hope hope you've been at grace for a while. You know that words matter, and defining our words matter a lot, especially today. It always has, but it seems like today, People purposefully use certain words wrongly. (laughs) They hijack words, and so we're not going to do that at Grace. We're going to say what we mean. 
Let's define our terms up front. And in particular, I want to tell you what we mean by missions. Maybe there's other ways to define missions rightly uh, or other other angles to come at the definition of missions. But at Grace, here is how we understand missions. It's crossing a significant cultural or language barrier to make disciples because we love God and we love other people. Here, let me say, I'm going to say the exact same thing. I'm going to say it a little differently. Another way to say it is that missions is the act of glorifying God by calling others across a significant cultural barrier to follow Jesus, and we do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, Genesis does not say everything there is to say about this, crossing a cultural barrier for the glory of God by calling people to follow Jesus in love, but it does cover a lot of its foundations. So let's get, let's get to them now. Here's a first of five points. Missions begins with a God worth telling people about. No God worth telling people about, no missions. It typically means grace, missions, going to hard places to tell people things they don't want to hear. <laughs> Spending a lot of money to do it. Getting a lot of training to do it. Learning another language to do it. Learning another culture to do it. Learning, above all, the word of God better to do it. Let me say that again. Missions typically means traveling to hard places to tell people something they don't usually or initially want to know about. In almost every case, missions is not convenient. It is not easy. It is not cheap. It is not safe. It is not efficient. And it is not welcomed. So why would we do it? (laughs) Why would you do that? If I told you there was a movie that was super expensive, it was awkward, nobody wants you in the theater, it's inconvenient, it's at like three in the morning, you should go see that movie. You'd think you're not, so why would I do that? I'll never forget reading the passage in Elizabeth Elliot's book. And if you don't know this, every week there's a, a sermon outline in the back or in the back of the room, and on the back of that is a list of discussion questions, possible applications, and things to pray about. And one of the applications is Read the Shadow of the Almighty by Elizabeth Elliot. Well, in this book, it's a it's her biography of her, her martyred husband, Jim, and, and she recounts the response of Jim's parents as he was contemplating missions. It seems they were all too aware of his good looks. He was He was athletic, he was charismatic, he was a leader, he was eloquent. They were very aware of this. They knew that he would have been able to succeed in whatever he did and in whatever ministry he did. And and so they encouraged him to become a a pastor and a preacher, maybe Billy Graham style, just prominent. He he, he had that kind of draw and that kind of the hand of God upon him. They, They reasoned that he could do the Lord's Work. It was important work in the United States where it was safe, confined. In other words, Jim's parents knew the true nature of missions. <laughs> they knew they knew that to engage in missions, for their son to engage in missions, would put himself at great risk. Little did they know, right? Little did they know the death he would die and the but also little did they know the missionary implications of his death, that that countless missionaries would go because of that exactly. But again, with this in mind, why would any parents look at your kids? (laughs) We're calling on you to send them. It's not going to be cheap, safe, efficient, welcomed, convenient. We're calling you to send them to places that are going to be 
hard to get to, expensive to get to, and nobody wants them there. Why are we saying that? What? Why wouldn't you think like Jim Elliott's parents? You know, just be a nice pastor. Pastor Davey wears a nice shirt. And if you saw Matt's deal in Ethiopia, it doesn't really look like that. And, you know, our, our roads, well, we have roads and stuff, and they have lines on them. And why would we do this? In simplest terms, there is certain news that needs to be told, no matter how it will be received. For instance, you were to develop the cure for cancer. There's no loving way to keep that to yourself, no matter how someone might respond to it. If you right now just started announcing, maybe you get a YouTube channel, because that's where all the good stuff comes out these days. You get a YouTube channel and, and announce to the world you found you found the cure for cancer. I imagine many would be initially skeptical. They might even call you a kook or try to silence and discredit you. YouTube would probably cancel your channel, right? But insofar as you really do have the cure for cancer, you, you cannot be silent about it. Getting the word out is worth getting censured or shamed or fired or, or even imprisoned for. You must continue to show and tell of its effectiveness until people believe you, even if no one ever does. Missions is like that. The first point to grasp is that missions is just like that. A right understanding of wit missions, which must come before a right engagement in, in missions, begins with a God who is worth telling people about one billion billion times more than the cure for cancer. Do you believe that? Kids, you've been to Sunday school for a while. You get these cute little coloring pages and you read stories about God and his people. And But kids, do you get that telling people about God, no matter the cost, is better than telling people, a, bil- a billion, billion times better than telling people about the cure for cancer. Do you believe that? Genesis will help us with that. It's just one of 66 books describing the unimaginable greatness of God. And even with all of them, we still need the Spirit to open our eyes and ears. But in it, in Genesis, are countless expressions of the glory of God. I, I got 13 for you. I'm just going to whip through them super quick. You've, you've heard most of them as I've preached through Genesis, but just consider whether or not this is your God. As you try to decide whether to go to a movie this week or tell somebody about Jesus, as you try to decide whether to spend $4 on like half a cup of coffee or spend $4 to support missionaries, ask yourself this. Do I, do I believe in this God? Is this the God that's shaping my view of all of this? In the very first words of Genesis. This is a sermon in and of itself. In fact, it was a sermon in and of itself a while ago. You can you can go and look at it. We find a self-sustaining eternal God. A self-sustaining eternal God. No beginning and no end. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth. I, I made a clay statue one time. I painted something one time. It hangs up. Took me a while. Took me like two hours to paint a flower. Right, Gabby? In the first two chapters of Genesis, we're told that God created the heavens and earth and everything that is in them with a word. (laughs) He spoke. By speaking, by simply speaking, God made light and water and dry land and sky and plants and the sun and the moon and the planets and the stars and animals and people, everything that was made. In the first two chapters, we also find that God is so great 
that he created all of these things and ordered them, everything, everything. He ordered everything for their survival and continuation. In these opening chapters, we see that God not only made all things physical and teleological, but also ontological. That is, he created things, the purpose of things, and the very nature of those things. Let me say that again, because teleological and ontological aren't normal words. We are from God, we are what God says we are, and we are for what God says we are for. That is awesome. I don't know if you know that, but that's awesome. If you if you don't know how awesome the fact that God can give meaning and purpose and being to a thing is, ask me afterwards, because I'd like to tell you more about that. Number five. In chapters six through eight, we see that God is so powerful that he was instantly able to make Noah a shipbuilder. Noah never built a ship, and now he built like the biggest one ever. God made, God was able to gather some of all of creation into a ship with Noah. We have goats. Lewis says you have goats. The idea of getting goats into anything is crazy. So imagine goats plus everything else with a word. He gathered some of all of creation into the ship with Noah. Sent a worldwide flood, preserved the ship dwellers for over a year, and then remade the entire world through a single shipload. By another simple word, God changed the lifespan of people from several hundred years up to almost a thousand with a word. He said it'll be 120, just like that. Staggering display of God's limitless power. Number seven, God made an entirely new thing. You know, it's cool. He made a bunch of stuff up front, and then he decided, let's have rainbows. (laughs) Let's have rainbows in order to show not what it shows today, but to show the staggering, limitless love and mercy and promise-keeping of our God. In chapter 11, we saw God change the actual languages of humans. Anybody know anything about J.R.R. Tolkien and his creation of the Lord of the Rings and how he made a world, he had to create the world before he could create the story that was in the world, including a language? And if you know anything about that, you know how staggering that is. Well, God did it, (laughs) and he did it, and he made people understand the language. Adam and Eve just knew it. They had a fully developed language system. It's awesome to create a language. It's awesome to teach a language. What power that is. But then (laughs) at the Tower of Babel, guess what? Here's a whole bunch of new ones, countless new languages, just like that, that people know. In chapter 15, we see a staggering, the staggering glory of God and his eternal covenant promises with Abraham, which will become more staggering as we consider them later in the sermon. Promises of countless children, a permanent homeland for them, and most importantly, to make, to be the God of these rebels. Not because they deserved it, but because he set his favor upon them. It's awesome. Throughout Genesis, we see the great glory of God and graciously and often miraculously keeping his covenant promises to his people in spite of their continued rebellion against him. Number 10, with Abraham and his offspring, God showed himself to be not just the God of conscious reality, but the God of dreams as well. We just saw that recently in Joseph, revealing his glory and his will to and through his people through dreams. 11. In chapter 21, God miraculously gave 
a promised child to a 90-year-old barren woman. He opened another room a few chapters later. He is the God of all barrenness and all life. Number 12, God's unmatched greatness was shown clearly in his guidance and blessing of Joseph. He miraculously brought Joseph in from being hated by his brothers and, and enslaved and then imprisoned to the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Through Joseph, God kept millions alive during a famine and brought his covenant people to Egypt in order that they might grow in number and prosperity. Lastly, what's more, and finally, throughout all of Genesis, we see God's unending and unparalleled glory and the many shadows and symbols he wove throughout Genesis to point to the future events of his greater glory in salvation, the salvation of mankind from the creation of light and its contrast with darkness to the promised saving seed that would come from Eve to the rainbow itself pointing up to the covenant promises with Abraham and on and on. And all of this, I'm barely scratching the surface of the glory of God in Genesis, much less the rest of the Bible. But again, just to help you to see that the rest of the Bible gets the glory of God in Genesis and praises it. Consider Nehemiah 9.6. You, in, in response to these events, you are the Lord God, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens and all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the hosts of heaven and us along with it worship you. Psalm 105, 1 through 6, in light of what we read in Genesis, oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all of his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice, seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and his and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, praise the Lord. If we are ever to engage or properly support those who engage in missions, it will be because we come to know the unsurpassing glory of the God of Genesis, a God worth telling people about no matter the cost. Here's your second point. They each get a little bit shorter. Missions is necessary because we do not honor God as God. The second point for us to see as we consider missions in Genesis is that while missions missions begins with a God worth telling people about, sin makes missions necessary. Let me be clear. That God is greater than you could ever imagine, which we begin to see in Genesis, makes him worthy of our praise. That God is greater than you could ever imagine, makes him worthy of all of our praise. Apart from sin, everyone would already share in that. So let me say, let me say this. Get this. This is, I think, important. <laughs> worship, worship exists, or worship is necessary because God is infinitely glorious. That exists apart from sin and with sin. Worship is necessary. What we must do because of who God is, is worship him. It's necessary because God is infinitely glorious. Missions is necessary, we see in Genesis, because sin lies about and distorts and hides 
and blinds us to and ultimately rejects this God of infinite glory. So worship precedes sin. Missions is necessary because in sin, worship is missing. Genesis records the entrance of sin into the human race in chapter 3. God had given Adam and Eve everything they needed to be wholly satisfied. He'd withheld from them and all of the garden that he had made for them just one thing, eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And yet with the help of the serpent's temptation, they ate. You see it in every children's story Bible, even in our Bibles, even in a, in a regular Bible, the story is so simple and childlike. The, the, the few simple verses that talk about it describe this treachery and a type of prose that makes it almost impossible to grasp how deep and, and horrible the events described in these few words were, what they unleashed. In this one rather subtle, understated exchange, Adam and Eve immediately died spiritually and ensured that they would die physically. Worse yet, they brought both kinds of death into all of their offspring after them. Literally and symbolically then in Genesis, we see that God cursed them and removed them from his presence. He scattered them. And we'll see that this scattering that keeps taking place throughout Genesis is a key aspect of missions. Before the fall, they existed in perfect harmony with God in a garden he prepared for them. After the fall, God removed them from the garden and secured it in such a way that they could never return. Just one chapter later in chapter 4, we see the first dramatic signs of the deteriorating and destroying effects of sin in Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. They both offered offerings to the Lord. Abel's was accepted and Cain's wasn't. In jealous anger then, Cain killed his brother and then lied about it to God. Believe it or not, as bad as that is, things continue, Genesis tells us, to go only downhill from there. Downhill to the point that by chapter 6, we read these words. The the Lord saw, remember this is a God who's worth telling everyone about. He's infinitely glorious and offered himself to his creatures, but sin was so sick and twisted and deteriorating that by chapter 6 in the Bible, we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. God determined, therefore, to judge the world through a flood, giving it a, a, a sort of a fresh start in every way except the fallen heart of man. By chapter 9, therefore, Noah, fresh off the boat of his salvation, drank wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in a tent, and down things spiraled from there again. The wickedness of mankind assembled in a city called Babel. There they said to one another, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Once again, the judgment of God was swift and severe. Throughout Genesis, we see that sin continued to the point that it caused barrenness and deceit and conflict between siblings and wars and kidnapping and unfaithfulness and jealousy and sexual deviancy and rivalry and trickery and selfish scheming and defilement and hatred and slavery and prostitution and adultery. 
And all of this, the sinfulness of sin increased, even as man's view to the great glory of God decreased. Grace again, while missions begins with a God who is worth telling people about, sin and the scattering it produces makes missions necessary. In Genesis, we see the beginning, consequences, and completeness of sin in mankind. Here's the third point. Missions has been a part of God's plan from the beginning. So the question we ask is, what could be done or what would be done? What might be done? What must be done in light of all this? God, who is infinitely glorious and worthy of all praise, the one being in whom we can find the satisfaction for which we were made, rejected and despised and and spiraling away, away from internally and externally. Further and further, people went from the garden of fellowship with God. What would be done about all of this? Would mankind be left in this death and rebellion? Would we be able to claw ourselves back into fellowship with God and to a view of the great glory of God? One of the main points of Genesis is that sin made mankind powerless to save himself. Left to our own devices and our own best efforts, however noble they might be, we will always fall short, Genesis helps us to see. Our only hope, Genesis makes clear, is that God would intervene. That's our only hope. Of God's intervention, Genesis has two main points. There are two things to see under this heading. One, God promised. He promised ultimate rescue and restoration to those who would trust in him. And two, God would commission his people to take this great news to the ends of the earth. Those two things we see in Genesis. Let me, let me tell you quickly about each one. God promised ultimate rescue and restoration to those who would trust in him in Genesis. As I hope to have helped you to see throughout our time in it, there are many, many references, some explicit and some far more subtle, to the ultimate salvation God would one day provide in Jesus. In this sermon, I, I just want to name three. I want to point out three of the bigger ones to help you see the simple point. First, we see God's promised rescue and restoration almost immediately after the first sin. Creation is in chapters 1 and 2, and ordering, our, our ontology and telia teleology are are given and described in chapters 1 and 2. The beginning of chapter 3 is where sin comes into the world, and within that same story, we get the first hints of the salvation that God would bring. In describing the sin-wrought curse that would come upon the serpent for being the means of temptation for Adam and Eve, God promised, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring, you or he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Chapter 3, verse 15. This is known, Grace, as the Proto-Evangelum, the first gospel. It is a promise of God to send a son of the woman to crush the serpent. It is a promise, as subtle as it was, and clearly the first readers of Genesis could not have understood this, but it was a promise to send Jesus to save the world. Second, we see God's promise of rescue and restoration in God's deliverance of Noah and his family through the ark. Much later in the Bible, in 1 Peter chapter 3, we're told that the ark was really a God-worked historical living picture 
of the saving work of Jesus. You ever been to a living nativity where it, you kind of walk through the, the story of the birth of Jesus? It's, it's pretty neat. God works living nativities into his creation, and the ark is one of them. How awesome is that? And the third, we see God's promise of ultimate rescue and restoration of those who would trust him in the covenant he made with Abraham. Remember the words, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will give you descendants as great as the stars in the sky, great in number as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. And I will give you a land to dwell in forever. Those, those were the words. The promise was to be the God of Abraham and his offspring. With that, as we saw earlier, again, it would be an everlasting kingdom filled with people and and land. The key for us to recognize, once again, though, comes many years later. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 4, explains that the Abrahamic covenant was really just another pointer to the new covenant in Jesus. Paul tells us that in reality, God's everlasting covenant promises to Abraham weren't for those who shared his last name, but his faith, that they were first spiritual before they were ever physical. That's awesome. None of the Old Testament people of God who heard these words, Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, the first recipients of Genesis, none of them could have understood the fullness of God's promises in them. The mystery that would finally be revealed many, many years later and the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come in the flesh to fulfill the promise through his suffering and death and resurrection. And yet for those who have eyes to see throughout Genesis and all of the Bible, the salvation of God in Christ is promised everywhere. That's the first thing to see about the, the fact that from the beginning, missions has been a part of God's plan. Here's the second. God promised his salvation, and second, God would commission his people to tell of the great news of the salvation to the ends of the earth. As this relates, this this idea of God's promised salvation relates to this sermon this morning, the question is how God would get these promises and the salvation in them to his people. Believe it or not, the answer in Genesis largely is through missions. Missions is the cross-cultural telling of this great news, of this great salvation, of this great God to the world. In Genesis, we see that God commissioned his people to do that right from the start. The the commission came in subtle ways. We We get sort of the placeholder even before the fall. What do I mean by that? Adam and Eve were to bear children and make the world flourish. They were to be like God by turning disordered things into ordered things, wilderness into civilization, that which was potential into that which was actual. And they were to do so in God's name, spreading the glory of God throughout all the earth. As we saw earlier, before the fall, this was about worship, before it was about missions. But we'll see in just a little bit, the same commission was given to Noah after the flood in an entirely new way. It forms this, this, this commission to Adam and Eve forms the subtle beginning to this ever increasing role of God's people to be lights in the darkness of the fallen world. God's call to his people to spread the news of his salvation around the world became a bit clear, as I just said, when Noah left the ark and received the same commission, now in a sin stained world, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
But get this, the fruitfulness and multiplication throughout the earth were to be physical for sure. They were to have lots of babies and repopulate the earth. But they were also missional. The text makes clear that the message of God's glory and salvation, along with Noah's kids, was meant to make, was meant to fill the earth as well through his people. We get another hint of God's missionary plans for his people in the Tower of Babel. I just talked about it in one sense, in, in the sense of the rebellion that it represented. But there's another really important, truly missionary aspect to this. Get this. It's often overlooked. In fact, I look back, and when I preached on it, I just mentioned it. I, I didn't press on this very hard, but I want to say it here. The, the Tower of the Story of Babel has serious missionary implications. We see we see it in the words of the gathered people at the end of 11.4. Just get this. The beginning of the missionary call is here in many ways. While most of our attention is rightly drawn to their idolatry, they're trying to make a name for themselves and be like God, building this tower into the heavens, that, that rightly gets most of our attention. But right after that is this. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with the top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. It tells us why, though. Why? Lest, to do, we need to do that, because if we don't, we will be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Why would they say that? What difference does that make? Why would they even think that? Well, here's why. God had commissioned his people to be missionaries, to spread themselves and the fame of his name across the earth. And they didn't want to do that. that that's key, a key part of the sin of the Tower of Babel was that they were commissioned to go. But they wanted to stay together. They wanted to stay silent. God's judgment on the Tower Builders was in no small measure on account of their refusal to go and populate the whole earth and spread the fame of his name everywhere to function as missionaries. What's more, and don't miss this, Grace, the judgment of God upon them, do you, do you already know where this is going? The judgment of God upon them is one aspect of what makes missions missions. If it is the cross-cultural, the going to other cultures and, and other languages to bring the gospel, it happened here. This is where the other languages of missions and the other cultures of missions came from. In other words, the judgment that was upon them was one of the things that makes missions necessary, but also so difficult. And here's the clearest of all, though still not as clear as it would be in the rest of the Old Testament, and even so in the New, comes God's commission to Abraham in Genesis 12. Do you remember what it was? When God first called Abraham, he called him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. God told Abraham to do that in, or, in order that Abraham would be blessed, but also that the whole world would be blessed through him. He says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Go, go to a different people across a significant cultural barrier and bless them through the blessings I give you. Does that sound like anything? Sounds an awful lot like missions, doesn't it? The whole point is summed up simply. God promised to save a people. And from the beginning, he chose to use missions to do so. This is, this is where I want to challenge, challenge you practically to engage in missions, to send, to support, 
or to go, Grace. We do our best to provide clear ways at Grace. The missions team does an awesome job of describing clear ways you can do all three. If you aren't sure how you might be more involved in sending, and by that we mean raising up and training missionaries, supporting, and by that we mean caring well for those who have gone or going yourself, taking to the missions field, please let us know. That's what this week is largely about. We want to put in front of you all kinds of ways to send, support, and go. This whole week is about how to support our current missionaries, about how to raise them up among generations, and perhaps for some of us, how to go ourselves. Here's the fourth point. This is short, unfortunately, because it's a, it's a really important one. It's one that in the rest of the Bible gets greater and greater legs, but in Genesis, it's small. The fourth point is that the aim of missions is not merely the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of the sins of the nations, but they're feasting on and fellowshipping with God. Forgiveness of sins is a means to a greater end. Therefore, supporting missions and missionaries is good, but not ultimate. The main aim is the glory of God being seen and savored, perceived and praised, recognized and revered among the nations. I was surprised, actually, to go back this week through all of Genesis. I was surprised at how little of that actually takes place, at least as described explicitly in Genesis. This is merely hinted at in Genesis as as God's revelation of himself and his saving work becomes increasingly clear, so does his praise in the Bible. But although this is merely hinted at in Genesis, we get glimpses of it. Mechilzedek says, blessed be the God most high who has delivered you, Abraham, from the hands of your enemies. In 24, chapter 24, Abraham sent his servant out to find a wife for his son. And having done so, the servant says, blessed be the Lord of the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. There's there's examples like that here and there, but there aren't many. Though Genesis does not have a lot on this, as one local pastor has said, and it was in our missionary devotional, if you got that email the other day, missions exist ultimately because worship doesn't. In light of this grace, <laughs> the greatest thing you can do, if you want to say, Pastor Dave, just give me one thing, one way that I can support missions in a new way, one thing, here it is. The greatest thing you can do to support missions is to feast on and fellowship with God yourself. Fall in love with him entirely. Fall in love with him entirely, and you won't be able to keep yourself. You won't have to be thinking, what are, what are some ways to do this? You won't be able to keep yourself from sending, supporting, and going. And when you do, when you feast on and fellowship with God, and and then you can't keep yourself from sending, supporting, and going, you'll have what the world most needs to give, the gospel of the good news that God invites the nations into that as well. That's awesome. Want one missionary charge this week? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You won't be able to keep quiet. And as you go, you'll have what they really need. And here's the last one. Here's the fifth. All that leads to the final point. In the beginning, I mentioned that missions is crossing a significant cultural or language barrier to make disciples because we love God and we love people. I also mentioned that it's hard 
typically because it means traveling to hard places to tell people things they don't want to hear. Nevertheless, because of the combination of God's greatness and sin's effects, God has determined that missions is necessary. He's determined to use it to accomplish his saving purposes among the nations. Given all of these things, though, it's right for us to ask, will it work? (laughs) I mean, have you tried to share the gospel with your neighbors in a language you know and a culture that you know? Do they usually just sort of trip over themselves to say, tell me more? Please tell me more about this Jesus who can rescue me from this hell that I deserve to be in. Please tell me more. How many of you have had that in the last week? Probably not many of you. I hope some, actually, but probably not many. We're right to ask, will this work? If it's, if it's hard in a, a, a place we know and, and can speak to, man, we're, we're going to other parts of the world. Is this going to work? The Genesis answer is a resounding yes. Genesis helps us to see that we can enter missions knowing that it will work because God is doing the work. Now, let me, let me just say one quick word. I took this in and, and then pulled it out, and I'm, I'm putting it back in on the spot. By work, success and missions for you and me is to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. That's success. That's our charge. Success for God is bringing wayward hearts to himself. So when I say success, make sure you know what I mean. Or when I say it works, make sure you know what I mean. That's what I mean. Genesis helps us to see that we can enter into missions knowing that it will work, that we will please God by doing so, that it will work and that we will be able to proclaim the gospel to the nations and that God for his good pleasure, will draw people to himself. We can know that it will work because God, for instance, initiated the covenants. In Genesis, we see that it will work because God, it was God who initiated the covenant promises. God, not man, made the promise that people would be saved. One of the most significant expressions of this is found in the fact that God alone passed through the animals when he made the covenant with Abraham. Read Genesis fifteen seventeen later if you don't know what I mean. That is a really significant passage. Second, God helped his people. We, we see that missions will work because God is doing the work in Genesis, because God helped his people remain faithful in spite of their sin and rebellion. Genesis, as, we, as we've seen, is filled with examples of God's covenant people wandering away from the covenant, only to have God often miraculously bring them back. One of my I say favorite, I don't like it, but the the clearest examples for me is Abraham lying about his wife being his sister. And here she is taken into the harem of Pharaoh and God protects and preserves and, and brings them back from their folly and their treachery. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all wandered in their own ways before being redirected back to covenant faithfulness by God. In the third main way we see God make missions work in Genesis is through the display of his providence, even in the sins of his people. This is most clearly seen in the passages we've looked at the last few weeks in Genesis. The final chapter, where Joseph acknowledges that all of the covenant unfaithfulness of his brothers was an instrument in God's hands to make them faithful. You meant evil against me, Joseph said to them, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are here today. 
Genesis Grace helps us to see that supporting and engaging in missions is never in vain because God has chosen to use it as a means of saving his people, of being faithful to his own promises. This point is critical if we are to pursue missions with the kind of hope and courage and confidence that God means us to have. Here's my conclusion. I said in the beginning that Missions Week is one of my favorite weeks of ministry in the year because it reminds me of God's global and eternal kingdom. I hope he already has through Matt and and, and the singing and John's prayer and exhortation and, and the sermon. I hope he already has, and I hope that he continues to do that for you all this week. But none of that will matter, Grace. Remember this. None of that will matter or honor God if it ends here. If we hear these things and, and think better about missions and 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 get stirred up just a little bit inside or even a lot just inside, but then it stops when Missions Week stops, none of this will matter. This week is not a simple reminder or a simple perspective enhancer. Rather, our heart, mine, the elders, the missions team, is that it would be a spark that ignites a new fire that burns throughout the year, throughout your life, throughout the generations, and burns even into the nations. Lean in. Here's my last charge. Lean into the glory of God and Jesus Christ. Lean into this week. Lean into his word. Lean into good biographies on missionaries. Lean in. Lean in. And then look to the nations with the aim of helping them worship God with all of their hearts, with all of their minds, with all of their souls, with all of their strength through Jesus Christ our Lord.